Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Alias Jane Smith, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. An exciting and romantic World War II mystery. Only a few months earlier, the young woman now known as Jane Smith had lived a life of luxury and privilege as the ruler of a small Balkan kingdom. She lived a life of glittering balls, the finest furnishings, the most handsome men, the most exquisite of foods. Her only friends were four bearded old men who served as her cabinet and worshipped the ground she walked on. Then the Germans had marched in, and she and her four counselors barely escaped with their lives. When at last Jane Smith shepherded her elderly charges down the gangplank and into Manhattan, they had only a few hundred dollars left, and used to every luxury, found themselves living in a shabby old brownstone. Jane had solved many problems and survived many dangers to reach the land of liberty, but her troubles were only beginning. An unprecedented new challenge faced her. They were safe, but how would they earn their way in this bustling new land? And if they did find a way, Jane knew she would have to take charge, remaking herself and her companions. For the qualities that had made her friends with the leading statesmen in Europe in no way qualified them for jobs in New York's melting pot. What was she to do, and how would she do it? And most importantly, who was she in the absence of royal power and prestige? How would she house and feed herself, let alone the four whose lives and welfare were in her hands? She needed to find work she could do, earn their living, and prove herself as worthy a citizen as any other American. But nothing in her previous life or training had prepared her for such a challenge. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Alias Jane Smith. Chapter 1 The procession that entered the phrase Dubois would have been comic if a certain indefinable dignity had not accompanied it. Major Lincoln Bowie of the Marine Corps had seen strange sights in various odd corners of the world, but considered this one sufficiently notable to stare at it with undisguised astonishment. There were but five persons in the procession, but somehow it seemed to be a parade that stretched for blocks. It contained four of the noblest sets of whiskers the Major ever had seen. At the head of the cortege, following Madame Bunard between the tables, was a gentleman in his late sixties, very tall, very thin, with a beard that seemed to be of spun silver, and descended to the middle stud of his immaculate shirt-front. Behind him marched a burly gentleman with a black beard that would have given him resemblance to the pirate teach had it not been so carefully tended. The third individual was a young woman to whom the major did not give his attention until he had finished with the whiskers. The third set of these embellished a long, bony, melancholy face and belonged to that genus known in England as Dundreary's. They were reddish, making the nude chin in the middle seem pallid, and sprouted from each cheek silkily. 
The fourth gentleman would have been dumpy had it not been for the grandeur of his walk and bearing. His beard was iron gray and of the type called imperial. His mustaches reached needle points. His cheeks were a glowing pink. His eyes were small and set close to a nose that resembled a cruller. And altogether he favored a good-natured pig masquerading as a human being. All were in formal evening dress. The major, having surfeited himself on whiskers, turned his attention to the young woman who, being in the middle, gave the impression of a precious bit of porcelain packed in excelsior. He could not make up his mind about her. That she was extraordinarily lovely was apparent, with a figure and carriage to cause faint dizziness. Her hair, dark brown, fitted her head like a helmet. Her eyes were brown, and her cheekbones were appealingly high. But just what kind of beauty it was, he could not discover. It was a different sort from any that he had ever encountered, and what it promised or threatened he could not guess. He had an impression of something imprisoned within its fair surface, and for an instant he thought it was a naughty little boy, and then he thought it might be a pixie in a sort of straitjacket, and then he veered to the other extreme and guessed it was something cool, cold, emotionless, and calculating. Such contradictory impressions were bewildering. Clearly she was not American or English but that she had been constructed by nature to puzzle and excite was beyond question. The Major was conscious of inward disturbance, and finally he thought that maybe it was not that something was imprisoned within that shell of beauty, but rather that something was lurking there in ambush, ready to pounce. Madame Bernard, carrying her embonpoint intrepidly, tripped lightly back between the tables, she hovered beside Major Bowie. "'De dinner does well, monsieur?' she asked. "'Will you marry me, madam?' he asked. Her kind eyes twinkled. "'But my husband,' she objected. "'Poison,' said the Major in a whisper. "'Who, then?' she asked. "'Would cook for us?' "'Right,' said the Major. "'In that case,' Will you both marry me? Pendant the other war, she said, there was a saying in Paris, Toutes les Américains sont fous. It was a true saying. Who are the whisker fanciers who just came in? One does not know, but they are very gentil. French? he asked. One sees at a glance that they are not French, she said severely. Madame has the glance of an expert. What nationality, then? She shrugged and spread her hands eloquently. One does not perceive, but very correct, nevertheless. Very, very correct. Major Bowie gave more attention to the newcomers than he did to the very excellent food on the table before him. It amused him to note the formality of the party, and the deference the four-whiskered gentlemen paid to the young woman was not exaggerated courtesy to a woman, nor tribute to her beauty. It was a kind of deference to which Bowie was not accustomed, and he did not understand it. 
With an inward smile, he thought of fairy tales and of gnomes whose duty it was to serve a princess. The mere fact that he was a soldier did not prevent him from being a fanciful and imaginative young man. The horror of Pearl Harbor and the long months in the jungles of the South Pacific had not quenched this flame in him, but rather had caused it to burn more brightly. Now that he was home again, with a month of leaves stretching invitingly before him, before he took up the new duties to which he had been assigned, he was disposed to exalt attractiveness into glamour, to invest the commonplace with romance. He had come home in the mood of a young man confident that dreams would come true, that the world could and would be a place of unexpected marvels, and that he would somehow find his share of them. In short, he sat there under the impression that the universe was his apple, and that he was going to take a large and delicious bite of it. The longer he watched the party, the more acute became his curiosity, and, being the sort of person he was, the more beautiful and mysterious became the young lady. He watched the way she distributed her words and smiles between her four hirsute companions, with a measured exactitude and a diplomatic care that each should receive in fair proportion. Never, he thought, had he seen such perfect poise, natural and instinctive poise. And yet he fancied he saw beneath that perfect self-possession, or hoped that he saw, something vivid and promising of the gammon variety. Something peeped out once in a while, he wanted to think that she was pent within a surface of decorum which made her impatient, and that she would like to break through with some very human, even unconventional bit of behavior to relieve her feelings and to give rein to natural but repressed tendencies. Once his eyes met the eyes of the young woman, but hers moved away, deliberately, without change of expression. He could not assure himself that she had become aware of him. It fixed in him a determination that she should become aware of him. But that posed a problem. Never before had he encountered a girl so thoroughly chaperoned. She sat there behind a rampart of beard, leaving no avenue of approach. Normally, he would have been quick to find some pretext to speak to her, or, failing that, would have hunted out a common acquaintance to perform correct introductions. But he was certain the four beards would tolerate no stratagems. And certainly there was no common acquaintance. It put him on his mettle. He paid his check, but lingered at the table. Presently, the party of five were done with their dinner. The very tall and distinguished gentleman upon the lady's right signaled to Madame Bonnard, who advanced with the addition. The tall old man with the spun silver beard indicated that it should be presented to the burly gentleman with the teach beard. This individual received it, gave it meticulous scrutiny, and produced from his immaculate attire a wallet which did not bulge. From this he extracted a few greenbacks, made careful calculation again, and entrusted the money to Madame. She returned with change, which Blackbeard counted, coin by coin, as if each one were very precious, 
and then left upon the plate a tip which seemed to Major Bowie to be of the minimum variety. The young woman spoke to him, not sharply, but with a manner. He seemed about to protest, but bowed from the waist with reluctant submissiveness and added a bill to the tip. They don't throw it around, the Major said to himself. He wondered if it was only continental economy, or if the distressed face of Spadebeard indicated a financial stringency made more serious by the young woman's lavishness. It was inconceivable that there could be a money shortage. They looked not only like money, but like something very special in the social way. As they arose to make their exit, he did note one fact that might or might not be revealing. The young lady wore no jewels, not a ring, not a clip, not a necklace. As they waited for their outer garments at the check room, the major stood just behind them. It was the tall old man with the spun silver beard who placed the cape about the young woman's shoulders, and he did it with an air as if it were a high privilege. They declined the taxicab offered by the doorman and walked eastward. By this time, Major Bowie's curiosity was at volcano heat. He had nothing else to do, and if he had, he would have neglected it. So at a discreet distance, he followed them. They crossed Park Avenue, turned north for three or four blocks, and then east again. They stopped at none of the smug houses in that expensive block, but crossed Lexington Avenue into shabbiness. In the middle of the block, they mounted the high steps of a house that had seen better days, and the gentleman with the fierce mustache and pointed beard unlocked and opened the door. And so they passed from the major's sight into a gloomy and far from aristocratic interior. He strolled slowly past the house, pausing to stare at its uninviting facade. Presently, Lights came on in that apartment, described by boarding houses as first-floor front. But the curtains being drawn, he could not see what took place inside. He continued on to the end of the block and then retraced his steps, but had been able to contrive no expedient which would help him to satisfy his increasing curiosity. He considered mounting the steps to ring the bell and ask if a Mr. John Smith lived there but had his doubts that this device would result in anything more fruitful than having the door closed in his face. As he stared at the bleak face of the house, he saw the curtain of a front window move. Someone had been looking out at the street, and he wondered if his interest in the premises had been observed. He was about to turn away and go on about his business. When the front door opened, and the burly gentleman with the piratical black Beard stepped out upon the steps and walked with erect dignity down to the walk. There was purpose in his approach. Major Bowie waited to see what would come of it. Sir, the black beard accosted him. You are of the army of these country, an officer? I am, the major acknowledged. Therefore, said Blackbeard, a gentleman. I can pass an examination, said the Major, on Emily Post. So, I am direct to request you to enter inside with me. 
My heart's desire, the Major said with enthusiasm. He followed Blackbeard up the steps, into an entry hall and thence into a regrettably dingy room, which in the heyday of the house had been the front parlour. Three other beards arose formally as he entered. The young lady occupied a large chair upholstered in faded red plush. She was demure, but also watchful and curiously dignified. Your name, sir, said Blackbeard. Major Bowie, I present you, Blackbeard said courteously, to Miss Jane Smith. The young woman inclined her head graciously, but did not rise, nor offer her hand. Also, said Blackbeard, to Messrs. Black, Brown, and Green. I, myself, am white. Color scheme, said the Major. He smiled at Miss Smith, who did not smile in return. You may be seated, sir, she said in English which was perfect but nevertheless had a delightful lilt to it that was only the ghost of an accent. It was not her native language, but she added a subtle delight to it. I thank you, he said, and waited. It was an odd situation. He did not know what to expect, but that was the way he liked things to be. In the café, said Miss Jane Smith, you stared at me. The plea is guilty. Also of the proprietress you asked questions. Your party, said the Major, would have aroused curiosity in an oyster. Ah, she said gravely, the beards, is it not? In America you do not appreciate beards. One young woman, eh, and four beards. As if, shall we say, I am protected by a hedge. So you follow us on the street and stand to stare at our house? Why? Because, he said, you are a beautiful young woman. It is a good answer, she told him and then to her companions. He has enterprise. He is, said the tall old gentleman with the spun silver beard, of an impertinence. It is not impertinent to admire said Miss Smith. I like it. Suddenly her brown eyes twinkled at Major Bowie. But your... Major Bowie was practically certain the old gentleman had been about to say in shocked protest. But your highness! He was pleased with that. It gave to the adventure a tinge of romance. Even if this were some sort of racket, new to him, it was being very well done. Attractively done. Even to the hastily interjected, hush, from Miss Smith, which silenced Silverbeard. We also have a curiosity, said Miss Smith, but not because you are beautiful. No, our curiosity is of the most practical. I hope I may be of service, he answered. A stranger must ask questions, she told him. One not accustomed to the country and to its admirable ways must become informed. On our way to this house we spoke of you. We spoke that you are an officer and a gentleman, and that it is suitable to ask questions of such a one. Shoot, said Major Bowie. 
She frowned a moment at this abruptness, and then smiled a trifle dubiously. Ah, an idiom, doubtless, giving permission to proceed. Right, answered the Major. The large question, she said, of first importance is this. How does one make money in the United States of America? That, said Bowie, is the $64 question. But, said Miss Smith, $64 is not enough. A sense of humor is a dangerous virtue, Bowie said. We will proceed as if I had not spoken. What kind of money do you mean? Eating money or diamond necklace money? She considered that a moment until she had sorted it out. Then she nodded and smiled. At the moment, she answered, It is eating money. It was Major Bowie's turn to ponder. He wondered if this were an elaborate and skillful method of making a touch. He wondered what was going on here. The whole situation was artificial, open to suspicion. It had all the earmarks of a novel racket. But if so, why pick on him? A major in the Marines was not exactly a golden objective. He wondered if by any chance they could have investigated him and spread a net. It was a possibility. He was aware of what time, what art, a party of efficient crooks would spend upon entrapping a victim. It might seem wholly possible to them that he was not a mere major in the armed services, but was rather the son of old Bowie of Bowie. The whole incident had the appearance of being impromptu. But that would be the very soul of art. You hesitate, said Miss Smith. Is it then so difficult? A beautiful young woman does not ordinarily invite into her house the first young man who comes along to ask economic advice. He said, I'd call it unusual. The circumstances, she said, are unusual. Enumerate them, he said tersely. The four sets of beards frowned and stared at him as if he had done something beyond the pale. Miss Smith raised her brows. We are, she said, strangers in a land of whose customs and way of life we are ignorant. It is but natural that we should seek information. As you scrutinized us, it was but natural we should scrutinize you. The results were satisfactory. Your interest in us took the form of following us here. Therefore, said Blackbeard, you were granted the honor of an audience. This time Miss Smith did not speak quickly enough to stop the words before they were spoken. Bowie felt, oddly enough, that they were authentic. Either Blackbeard was a superb actor, or the eccentricity of inviting a stranger in off the street to advise on pecuniary matters did not seem to him eccentricity. He seemed to believe that Miss Smith was endowed with a special right to call upon anyone, and that that individual would be honored by the command. All right, he said, I'll play. What have you to offer? I do not understand, said Miss Smith. If you want to make money, said Bowie, 
You must have something to sell in the way of property or services. I take it the property angle is out. What can any of you do that someone will pay you for doing? He paused. You can't go into business without capital. You can't get a job unless you can do something. The things we have been doing, said Miss Smith, do not fit us for jobs in private industry. He appraised her with his eyes and found her wholly satisfactory. You, he said, could earn a decent living as a model. There was silence in the room, stunned, shock silence. The old gentleman with the spun-glass beard was on his feet, his distinguished face a picture of outraged dignity. The audience, he said with suppressed rage, is at an end. Whoa, said Bowie. The best people do it. The annual glamour girl does it. Society dames do it. It's honest. And it pays. I do not think Major Bowie intended offence, said Miss Smith. It is ourselves who do not understand, perhaps. The suggestion is mad. It is outrageous, said Blackbeard. I believe said Miss Smith softly, that there is a Grand Duke in New York who earns his daily bread as a barber. For us, yes, said Spunglass. In your service, anything. To clean the street, to make the ditch to be dug. But you... No. Hunger, she said again softly, is not nice. Major Bowie narrowed his eyes. Then he directed his attention to Spunglass. Is there anything you can do, sir? He asked, impelled somehow to add the respectful sir. I? In my leisure, in the time when the mind must relax, I have found it good to occupy the hands. Doing what? He made me the most marvellous doll's house, with furniture complete. He makes the chair... The cabinet, the chest, the table. And you? Bowie indicated Blackbeard. That ferocious gentleman was embarrassed. Quite evidently, he regarded his hobby with some shame. I, he said, find recreation in making the pictures with brush and paint. What about you? Bowie asked of the gentleman with the dundrearies. I cannot make with the saw or the hammer. I cannot paint with the brush. I only make myself happy with the study of ceramics. The Sevres, the Capo di Monte, the pottery of ancient China. Not useful. Collector, eh? And what's your specialty? He asked of the wearer of the pointed beard and mustaches. There was a little museum, he said, and there was grief in his voice. A so little museum when compared with the great ones of the world. But in it, nothing but the most desirable. Not many tapestries, but one, nevertheless of the finest. You understand, the most magnificent Gothic vestment, the textile of old Peru, the fate of these things make me most triste. Again, Bowie surveyed the little assemblage, 
It was, in his own word, phony, but phony in an impressive way. It had the sort of phoniness that might have a commercial value in a city where too much money was in too many wrong hands, and where so many times the spurious was more attractive than the real. In his head, an idea stirred. It was, in a way, a comical idea, even a colossal joke. But it had possibilities. There wouldn't be one of you with a quirk for management, would there? Someone who can pull things together and make them run? Miss Smith exchanged smiles with her companions. There have been times, she said, when I have pulled things together and make them run. Right, said the Major. I've an idea by the tail. It needs some turning over and over. What if I go along and whip it into some kind of shape and call tomorrow? Miss Smith's eyes twinkled. And tomorrow, she said, there will yet be details to discuss the day after. I think you are a good soldier. You make the strategy. Wouldn't you in my place? Bowie asked with some impudence. Of a certainty, she said, if the girl is pretty enough. But before you depart, can you not make a hint of this idea? This idea that will utilize the so useless talents of us all? Why not? asked Bowie. Ever hear of an interior decorator? In all my life, never, she said. What kind of an interior does it decorate? Not the stomach, no. Not the stomach, said Bowie, rising. I want to talk to a couple of people. Get some information. At what hour tomorrow? Miss Smith glanced at her companions, and there was something like defiance in her pert, shrewd eyes. The hour of luncheon, she said. One o'clock of the afternoon. I'll be here, said Major Bowie. He bowed himself out, walked slowly down the street, wondering. He had let himself in for something. Had he made a fool of himself? Was he on the way to being taken by a group of canny confidence people, or what? He decided he didn't care. He decided that an opportunity to cultivate the acquaintance of Miss Smith was well worth any risk involved, and being... Not without self-esteem. He was quite sure he could protect himself in the clinches. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Alias Jane Smith. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.